Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Roundtable, the place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers and investors in the world so you can take your manager due diligence or investment career to the next level. Before we begin today's conversation, remember to keep two things in mind. All the discussion that we'll have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Now, here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup-Larsen. Welcome back to Top Traders Roundtable, a podcast series on managed futures brought to you by CME Group, where I continue my conversation with Chris Solas, Managing Director, Global Macro Hedge Fund Strategies at Cliffwater, Adam Duncan, Managing Director at Cambridge Associates, and Freeman Wood, who's a partner and head of North America at Mercer. Just listening to your answers, and, 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 and obviously there's a lot of agreement between the three of you as to how you look at these things. Is there a risk that you end up with the same universe, more or less, of managers, and therefore we and not only get a concentration of assets like you know the HFR uh, report suggests, but also that we might kill innovation, meaning that smaller managers simply don't have, that there's not enough demand for them to succeed, and therefore the whole innovation kind of starts disappearing. I think the, the incentive fee structure is always going to be there. It's, it can be a very lucrative industry, mm. and I think any asset management group is is very scalable. Mm. So your management fee and performance fee on a hundred million is more than ten times profitable when you make it to a billion. So I think mm. that will always invite new entrants into the marketplace. Mm. But but you're right, it's it's a very, very challenging place and it's it's even more so today than it was in years past. Mm. And I think the low hanging fruit of alpha is largely gone. It's not so easy to be any of the strategies, mm. right? You really have to mm. be the best. Mm. So I think that it's, it's certainly a more challenging environment. I think the, the big picture to keep in mind, though, at $3 trillion, we're still just a drop in the bucket of the entire global mm -hmm. financial system. Exactly. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of assets out there, and it's yeah. getting bigger and bigger every day. And that, that people are looking for return. And in a low-return world, people start looking for more interesting ideas. They look for emerging managers. They look for something different just to try and enhance their returns over time. So I think that... The, the demand will continue to be there. Mm. Just again, to put things in perspective a, a little bit for the audience, um, I read that, that your firm, Adam, from some of your colleagues in London, talked about that from a universe of around 11,000 hedge funds, you narrow it down to around 250 or so. That's on the recommended list. That's at least what was reported in an interview. I don't know if it sounds about right. Or just to get a feeling for how many funds do your firms cover, recommend? Uh, what's the universe today? That number's a little low, I think, okay. of the total number, you know, I think we've, I think the number's actually a little higher, I think it's about 14,000 hedge funds now, okay. there's actually more hedge funds than Starbucks in the US, <laughs> if I saw that data correctly, uh, which is a bit remarkable. But I think about that, we have a little over 3,000 that we sort of touch and, and sort of monitor in the database, and I think our recommended list across all strategy types is just under 1,000. All right. And that, that 
varies a little bit. We've trimmed it. We've trimmed some of those a little bit. So I don't know what the exact number is right now, but um, it's, it's more than 250, uh, but but not more than a thousand. And I think you know there are, there are questions you can ask about how much of the universe should you you know should you research before you start picking mm-hmm. things. Mm-hmm. And we're thinking carefully about there are algorithms that actually can 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 answer those questions. And I think we're actually, in some cases, I think we're a little over-researched. And in some cases, I think we're a little under-researched. And, you know, we're thinking about ways to kind of, you know, balance our, our research effort there. But but I feel like we, we do a reasonable job. I don't think that there's, if you looked at Chris's list or Freeman's or, you know, I think that there's less homogeneity than you would think. Okay. And I'm always surprised when I come to these events about the new funds. And there's always names I haven't heard of or, you know, I'm surprised that there's just there's just a lot going on out there, and yeah. so I, I don't worry so much that you know we do have similar views on things, but I actually think that our our coverage is, is sure. pretty diverse. Sure, I, I would agree. I think that it, we, we, you see new managers all the time. We 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 have clients coming to us with ideas of, of managers they've that, that we've never heard of before. Part of what we do in, in in our group is is we do bespoke work on for clients to do right. reviews of their managers that that may not be on a, on any of consultants' list, and we get to see some of those very small two or three person shops, and, and that it's always interesting to see what's out there. So mm-hmm. there's always a flow of ideas, but I think that you you need to balance sort of the breadth of your coverage with the depth of your coverage, and I think um, that's you know to, to Adam's point, you need to make sure you spend enough time on the quality managers, and you're touching them. Often and and then that that depth of coverage is, is is important is trying to find some you know emerging two person manager that's going to drive alpha over time. So you need to balance that. That's really important. Sure, sure. I want to jump to another topic which is somewhat related to what we've discussed so far, and that is that in recent years, and and Chris, I think you mentioned it earlier. You know, investors, including consultants, perhaps have complained about the performance of their hedge fund managers, including the CTAs, as you mentioned. Now, eVestment just came out with a report titled, and I quote, 2016 ends the best year for hedge funds since 2013. It goes on to say that hedge fund return on average around five and a quarter percent for the year of 2016. And this, of course, was following one of the few negative years on record for the $3 trillion hedge fund industry. But that the flows in 2016 appear to highlight increased dissatisfaction with the industry substandard 2015 returns. The article goes on and concludes, and I quote again, however, despite some high-profile declines, the average hedge fund outperform an equally weighted equity fixed income benchmark for the second consecutive year, and several segments show that 2015 may have been an anomaly for the industry. Firstly, let me just ask you where you stand on this. Are you generally happy with the performance you get from your universe of, of managers, alternative managers? Overall, we, are, we have generally been unhappy with hedge fund performance over these past few years. We have written a white paper that shows that over the cycle, good hedge funds can produce 3 to 4% of pure alpha when you strip out all the betas. And this is not very sexy of a return stream. But this is the reality of it. This is what hedge funds should be paid for, for the real alpha mm. produced. And that's quite low. So the hedge fund performance is, a, is cash plus beta plus alpha. And in different environments, when cash was higher, when they took more beta, when they take more beta, you can get more impressive returns. But even the alpha has been, has been flat to negative over these, from 2015. Mm. It, there was first in 2011, we saw a low. 2015, we saw a low. 
So in general, people haven't been too happy with this. I think the bigger picture is that we've had a runaway bull market that's gone up threefold since March 2009. And we haven't had a, a reasonable pullback in S&P in, in nine years. So everything gets benchmarked to equity in, indices, whether we admit it or not. People keep an eye on how is, what could I have done if I simply stayed long in the market? And this has led to an environment where just about every mutual fund, which is long biased, has outperformed every hedge fund over the past seven years. And we have three-year trailing metrics, we have five-year trailing metrics, and we're well past all of these. Mm -hmm. So everything you look at, and I think this is why passive investing has, has, has started to uh, be more at the forefront of, of people's expectations, it's simply been a very, very difficult environment for, for, for anything, for any trading strategies, partly because of the global coordinated central bank policy that suppressed volatility. And surprisingly, with all of the unforeseen, all of the big questions that are still out about 2017 with, with Trump, with China's inevitable credit bubble, and the big question still is, is Europe going to exist, the European Union going to exist even by the end of this year? You know, all of these things you would not expect that people would be so complacent that volatility that the VIX would have a 10 handle. Mm. And I think that the expectations are that we're going to continue to, to have increase in equity markets. And you don't need hedge funds mm. if you have a, you know, a 45 degree angle with no volatility for, for equity markets. And right now where we see it, we see equity markets are at all time highs, many places around the world, particularly in the US. And fixed income markets largely are still at all-time highs. Yields are at nearly all-time lows. They're off the balance from, from November, but in general, that's kind of where we stand. This is, I would argue, the time that you need the hedges. If we could go back in time, we probably would have, would have advised all of our clients in 2009 to simply be long only. And then wait, fast forward 2017, now is when you want to be in hedge funds. I, I completely agree. I think, I think people lose sight of the fact that hedge funds have, have done a very good job for our clients over the last... 15 years, and many of those strategies, you know, did, did fabulously well. Distressed investing, you know, we were early into distressed investing, and that paid us handsomely for 13 years. And as more money has come into the industry, there we've talked about a little bit about um, the changes in risk preferences and, you know, sort of the decline in, in volatility. But I think I think it's a little early to say that hedge fund investing is done or over or whatever. There's just not enough evidence to sort of say that. And you know, a lot of the strategies that we have invested in have rolled over in the last couple of years. They've they've you know had had a little bumps in the road here, but I think it's premature to suggest that that uh, oh let's you know throw it all out and go passive. I think that would be a mistake. I wouldn't recommend that. Yeah, I would agree as well. I think that when you look at when a hedge fund excels, it isn't in the last four or five years. The environment isn't conducive to it. Low volatility, low returns. You know, when you're looking at a strategy or set of strategies that benefit from high volatility and have high fees, and therefore need high returns to, to, to generate the, the amount of alpha, it's just not a good environment for them. When you look at in the longer period of time, when you throw in some volatility and you throw in uncertainty, you see why hedge funds matter, why alternatives matter. And that, that environment certainly is, is more likely to occur in the future, given the political change, given uh, the, the economic change that, that we're facing. So... Uh, I would agree. It's it's way too early to say hedge funds don't matter. I think the the biggest criticism I have for hedge funds over the past eight years is that 
these guys are getting paid the big bucks to see the future. And what they collectively missed was the Bernanke put, the, the Yellen put, the, the Draghi put. The simple fact that risk assets, any risk assets, was what you want to hold. I think they perhaps were too hedged or too biased because at the end of the day, clients do want to make money. And I think they've been disappointed by absolute returns because hedge funds perhaps have been too cute over the past few years when, you know, hindsight is 20 it's certainly easy to say, but I think we give these guys a lot of fees and we can expect a lot in return. And what they collectively missed was, was this risk on opportunity. Well, speaking of fees, that's usually the other thing that comes up in the press at the moment. And that is, you know, when you talk about disappointing returns, uh, then it's also mentioned that there should maybe be a need for, for lower fees. And I think, you know, in fairness, it's not just investors. I saw that one of your colleagues, uh, Auburn Partners, have talked about angry dollar fees, where they refer to the fixed management fees and, and how, the, the, in their opinion, this should be reduced. Where do you stand in, in, in this discussion? And what are, what are the right kind of fees and what are the right levels of fees uh, nowadays? I, I always use this like simple little coin flipping game to kind of demonstrate one of the reasons that fees need to come down, which is that let's play a game and I'm going to flip a coin every month. And if it comes up heads, you win a nickel. And if it comes up tails, you lose 10 cents. That is basically the, a very similar game to a two and 20 fee structure. Two and 20 plus expenses on an annualized basis is about half of the gross. So it's not unlike this game where you win a nickel and lose 10 cents every month. So if you, if you play that game ad infinitum, then the expected value of that game is about negative two and a half cents. And so a natural question to ask is, how often does the thing have to come up heads for me just to break even? And the answer is about 67% of the time. And so for me to make money, that thing has to come up heads more than 67% of the time. Let's call it 70, 75% of the time. So in any activity that you can think of where there's luck and skill involved and a high degree of randomness, where are you going to get 70% or better edge before you make a bet? In other words, our due diligence has to get us all the way to a 70% conviction level before we can want to play this game under a 2 and 20 fee structure. So the reason that fees need to come down, in my view, it's not some moral high ground on who makes money and who doesn't. It's because I can't get through my due diligence. I can't get the conviction level high enough in order to want to play the game. These have to come down so that through my due diligence, I can get to a level where, yeah, I think I can play this game and, and still make money. Mm -hmm. And so I think there is a misinterpretation that, that we're just taking a, the high ground on how much money people are making. No, it's just I can't play this game with my research tools under those under those structures. Which fees do you want to see come down? The management fee or the performance fee? Well, all of it, really. Uh, I think all of it needs to come down. I think you need to be a little bit careful about lowering the trade-off between fixed fees and incentive fees, and you know, lowering the fixed fee and bumping up the incentive fee. It appears as though that aligns investors' interest, and it does in the single manager case. But in the case where the client's holding many managers with many performance mm -hmm. fees spread around, those incentive fees end up being a fairly strong disincentive to diversify. Mm -hmm. The more you diversify, the more likely it is that you're going to end up paying fees to some mm -hmm. portion of the universe and end up with zero return. 
And so there's a strong disincentive to diversification. And that is sort of orthogonal to the entire message that we, we mm-hmm. tell clients that it's a good idea to diversify. And so, so I think you need to be a little bit careful. I think that the overall thing is that you know, people should go for fixed fee structures and that are low and reasonable. And I think the, the reason that fees are such a big issue, it's really a symptom of the disease that is hedge fund underperformance. Mm-hmm. If everyone were making big, big money, people wouldn't worry about paying higher fees. So I think it's a, it's a plug in order for the, the LP to take more share of the gains by, having, by paying lower fees. Mm-hmm. So I think this has come up, it's come up a lot and a lot over these past few years, and we've seen a lot of different innovative structures. And just to name a few of them, which I think are interesting, clearly the 2 and 20 structure is, is dead. 2 and 20 no longer exists, even for the, even for the blue chip managers. I think that has come down. Mm-hmm. So is, is the new 2 and 20, 1 and a half and 15, perhaps? Something like that. That's the starting point, I think. But we're seeing discounts for longer lockups. We always see three-year class or a five-year class. Mm-hmm. We've always kind of seen that. That's not, nothing new, but we're starting to see more of that. Mm-hmm. We're seeing discounts for larger institutional share classes. Mm-hmm. One thing I'm starting to see a little bit is declining management fee as AUM mm-hmm. grows. Mm-hmm. So maybe it's one and a half until 500 million, and then everyone at 500 million now pays 1%. Mm-hmm. I like that. I think that that aligns it. One thing I've seen is discount for loyalty. So you get an extra 25 basis points off your management fee every time you've been invested for four years. Mm-hmm. Performance fee hurdles. I think this has been used quite well in, in, in the private equity space, yeah. but I was interesting this week to see three different startup managers with five and 10% hard hurdles. So if you make 10% gross, mm-hmm. the manager doesn't take any performance mm-hmm. fee on that. Mm-hmm. He has to make 20% gross in order to be able to take performance fees on that 10% difference between the, the 20 mm-hmm. and the 10. And finally, we're seeing clawbacks on incentive fees. And I think part of the evolution as well, we're seeing lower cheaper versions of your main fund. Mm. So you're able to get a different flavor for a cheaper fee, but still with the same investment process of, of the name brand firm. I think we're definitely seeing more creative fee structures. I would totally agree with you mm-hmm. as there's more pressure. I think you're, you're right. I think, I think Adam particularly is that, is that uh, and Chris, if, if you return to the you know payday of hedge funds and have those huge returns, people will care less about those fee structures. That, you know, they're going to be excited about the returns, but, but I'm not sure we're ever going to get there again, certainly not in the near term. One of the things that that we think is really important, though, is that as there's more and more pressure on fees, you just need to start really doing your due diligence on what's included uh, in those fees versus what is being charged to the fund. And we're seeing, particularly smaller managers, they're starting to embed uh, costs into what the fund pays for. And therefore, the fees look like they're coming down, but you know, all the costs are really eroding your alpha in other places. They're burying it. And, and, and so it puts a lot of emphasis on your due diligence process to understand and not just you know, the fee structure, but you know, where the costs are going, who's paying for what. Sure. I mean, I don't want to ask any controversial questions. And of course, I do it with the greatest respect for, for all of you. But in that discussion, do clients actually also maybe uh, ask you to consider your own fees because you know you're part of the, the the process of selecting the managers and so on and so forth, or or is it mainly now so the focus is still just on the managers' fees? Both, we've seen Both? fee okay. compression across the industry. Okay, for sure. Yeah, yeah. I think people will spend their money where they, where it makes sense. So you know, so when you think about what we all do, the, the due diligence we do, the research that we do. 
I think clients understand the value in that, not just for the for the intellectual capital we're bringing, but also the time we spend, and that they really can't do that. So I think that's um, that's where you see clients willing to spend. Whereas if it's just broad fees, they're going to look at what value they're getting out of that. And, and we go back to the earlier discussion. We talk about sort of that spectrum of services that we provide, everything from just pure tools for the do-it-yourselfers all the way through delegated and, and, and we're doing all the work. Clients all along that spectrum are looking for what value am I getting for the fees I'm, I'm paying? And if you can demonstrate that, they're very willing to pay that. If you can't, then obviously they're going to put a lot of pressure. Mm. It kind of brings me on to uh, to just the next topic, which was we already touched upon this a little bit, and that is the sort of, you know, cheap alternatives. You know, the especially, I mean, obviously I, I see it a little bit from, from the trend following and managed futures uh, part, but I mean, we've seen uh, funds in, in that, you know, area where they've gone from, I think last year, one of them grew by almost 600% to close to 3 billion. And it seems like everybody just loves this, However, I don't really see a lot of evidence yet that long-term that these funds outperform the best trend followers, for example, in the world. So I wonder just, is the headline fee more important to you and your clients than the net returns after fee? Oh, I think that the attractive fees is a necessary, but definitely not a sufficient condition for investment. Mm -hmm. I think... We're, we're not going to invest in something that doesn't have attractive fees. We are also not going to invest in something that, that just isn't of high quality. Mm. And this is what makes for negotiation, right? You know, you have something for high quality. You don't want to sell it cheaply. We would like to buy high quality things cheaply. And so we have the, the table is set for a negotiation. Mm. And to Chris's point, I'd like to reiterate that is that it is a negotiation. It is not running around beating people over the head to just get lower fees. I am very much in favor, and we do this in our negotiations, of structures that put the onus on us to earn our way into more attractive fees. Mm. I think the relationship between manager and consultant can really deteriorate when they make concessions and then we don't deliver any assets or we don't deliver the kind of client interest mm. that they were expecting. And so a fee structure that steps down as our level of interest grows and so on, I think is fair and, and helps put some of the pressure back on us to mm-hmm. to really help raise assets mm-hmm. for them. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's, that's important. And when you think about broadly sort of fee for value, beating down custodian, for example, or beating down a manager or any service provider to a level that isn't sustainable doesn't add value in the long run. So you have to really look at the value that you're getting and the partnership you have with any provider, whether it's a consultant, a manager, or service provider like a custodian. We, we spend a lot of time on that because that's where you can get a lot of value. You can save some costs, but really get value is what you're trying to achieve. Mm. Time. I mean, we're recording now in the early part of 2017, and clearly 2016 was a very eventful year, certainly on the political scene. Maybe I can come to you first, Chris, on this one. What's what's your biggest takeaway from, from 2016? And have you learned something new from a year like that? <laughs> I think we learned a lot. I think I think the, the rise of populism is, is alive and well. And I think that's one of the biggest risks in Europe right now for the stability of the European Union. So I think there are a lot of risks, and with risk, provide opportunities. So it, it feels... It feels good to me on the on the hedge fund side that there will be tremendous opportunity this year. Mm-hmm. There was tremendous opportunity last year with with we saw the rise of voters, right? We saw mm-hmm. Brexit. Mm-hmm. We saw the U.S. 
elections and we saw the Italian referendum. Mm. Three three very big voter turnouts for all three that, that changed the course of human events. Mm. And I think we'll see a lot of them that's coming up this year. We've got Dutch elections, French, mm. German, perhaps Italian as well. So I think it provides a lot of opportunity. And for the first time in, in a while, I feel like this will really set up a great opportunity for, for some of these hedge funds mm. because volatility should be greater. Mm. And the opportunity, and a lot of these big events haven't been priced into markets. Mm. For example, the, the, the two-year note in, in Spain is trading trading under that of the U.S. You know, it's trading closer to zero. Mm. That doesn't make sense considering mm. the, the, the potential for, for unrest in, in Europe. So there's a lot of asymmetric opportunities that mm. managers can capitalize on. So from that perspective, it's a very exciting time. Mm. You all agree on that? I, I think so. I think you know, volatility creates opportunity, particularly in, in alternative asset classes. And, and you know, the thing that the big learn me personally was that I didn't realize volatility could go so low and, <laughs> in, a, in a world where it, it looked very volatile. So yeah. that is the big surprise to, to me and I think to many is that volatility came down to where it did. Um, and one would expect that given the changes that, you know, that Chris just described, that and that we're all aware of that sure. volatility should come up, but no. So, you know, obviously one of the big turning points from a market point of view last year was really the interest rate and, and bond market, you know, turn, which suggests at least that maybe the 35-year interest rate cycle has turned. Adam, when you think about that, does that change the way you want to allocate within the alternative space? And, and obviously... If you could influence the overall portfolio in terms of how much is allocated to alternatives overall, would that also be influenced on, on this since it's such a big talking point within the institutional world about you know fixed income? I don't think that my views on allocations to alternatives will be overly influenced by the level of interest rates. I do, I do think that very few people will be successful in making money, being short interest rates or making big bets about higher rates. I think that will be a very difficult and perhaps disappointing trade for people who try it. I do think that people underestimated how well fixed income generally would perform despite the levels of rates uh, over the last couple of years. I think people underestimated how well just being long fixed income was going to do, and I think that was somewhat of a mistake. Having said that, I don't, I don't think that that will change my perception or, or others' ideas about whether or not alternatives will do well. I do think that there is, you know, the, the, the trend followers and the crisis alpha folks need to be a little bit careful here, and people need to be a little bit eyes open. You know, if you would get a protracted sell-off or, or even a sort of shorter sell-off, and CTAs were not long fixed income at the time that the crisis alpha could be impaired. And so, so I worry a little bit about the potential for an equity correction when trend followers are mm. neutral fixed income, which is what mm. sort of happened after mm. the election. But I think that, that you know, if, it's a, if it's going to be a protracted correction, that the systems will be fairly quick to get back into fixed income and that that shouldn't be too much of a problem. But, but there is the potential here that if you get some volatility in interest rates and systems get neutral fixed income and then you have an equity correction, that that crisis alpha would be impaired. So that's a little bit of a... Mm. I, I think that's the big worry, that we're going to have the simultaneous sell-off of bonds and equities, like we saw during the taper tantrum in 2013. Mm -hmm. And these periods are particularly troublesome for strategies that are predicated on the correlation holding up. 
the negative correlation between bonds and equities that when equities sell off, there's a flight to quality mm. and fixed income. Mm. So this could be particularly troublesome. One thing that I, I've seen this, this trend and it's come back full circle now is that five or six years ago, one of the biggest questions at all the conferences is how are you, how is your portfolio positioned for the inevitable rise in interest rates? <laughs> and then for the, you know, and it, and it didn't and it didn't work because mm. interest rates kept coming down. And then when we had negative interest rates, we realized that the whole lower bound is now unlimited to the downside. Mm. We had Draghi do it, and then we had in Japan last year, I think we realized collectively that negative interest rate didn't work. Mm. And now the, the pendulum is swinging again. And now people, especially after we saw the, the huge sell-off in global fixed income after the Trump election, we start to, we're starting to ask that question again over mm. the past two years, mm. over the past two months, what about the inevitable mm. rise of interest rates? Mm. So that's going to be on the forefront of everyone's minds as they're considering their their portfolios. Sure, sure. I think it's what, what's interesting is is when you know, a few years ago when people looked at interest rates and said, okay, well we're getting close to the bottom. You know, we've got an asymmetrical you know probability, so let's start betting on that rise. And then the prospect of negative interest rates changed people's perspective. Right. And you know what can happen even when you have a much higher probability of going up based on history, it's it, it changed people's perspective. So mm-hmm. I think that that. That has been an interesting phenomenon, but I would agree that it, it, people realize okay, the downside isn't unlimited, right? Uh, you know, for for rate movements, it is it is somewhat limited, and therefore that, that prospect still exists going forward of, of rising rates and how you're going to protect yourself, or not really protect yourself, but just how you want to position yourself and what makes sense relative to your your needs. And again, oftentimes you know we, we ignore the need. What do you need the money for? For retirement assets? Is it a pension? Is it an endowment or foundation? And when is that need going to occur? Then you start thinking about, well, do I really care about short-term moves or I really want uh, important to, to think about what the long-term view is and how do I position myself to match those, those needs, whether they're liabilities or their, their investment needs with, with the investment thesis. Sure. I mean, I know we could talk about this for for much, much longer, but I want to start bringing our conversation to a close. And I want to invite, since I've been asking most of the questions, I want to invite you to maybe bring up something that you think that I should have covered or a question to one of your colleagues that you want to ask them before we sort of end our conversation. So I'm going to start with you, Chris, either a thought or a question you think would be relevant at, at this stage. Uh, it's, a, it's a good question. I'd like to maybe just pass, pass the questions. I, I don't have a, a pressing question. We've covered a lot of ground mm-hmm. and a lot of good ground. Mm-hmm. What's been interesting during this dialogue for me is the similarities of views in a number of areas, and so that's been that's been very very interesting to me. We we come at our, our jobs a little bit differently. Our responsibilities are, are a bit different, but you know, our views seem to be very consistent with the with the areas we talked about. So I I would agree that that's, that's been very good. I I think that for me over these last months and leading up to this conference and preparing for this actually, for me the biggest concern is the wall of money that's come in and the risk preferences attached to it, and the response from the managers, which has led to sort of a systematic decline in the amount of risk that's being taken, and the forward-looking sharp ratios of and prospects for alternative investments. And I think that people, I think the real risk here is that the investments are just under-risked and will possibly deliver similar 
sharp ratios in the future, but at potentially much lower levels, mm. just because the amount of risk taking is is lower. Do you mind if I ask you a question on that? Because I think that's a great point. Is do you think what is the contributor to that? And and, yeah. and do you think it's you know as we spoke before, do you think it's people are having a much more shorter time horizon in, yeah. in view of risk management? And are they is that driving a, a more risk averse culture or what, what do you think? I think that there's two things. I think one is that a lot of the money that's come in does have lower risk preferences, and they've they've brought a lot of money with them and a desire for you know a desire not to lose five percent, not to lose ten percent, and the amount of risk that a manager will run under those sort of conditions is very low. If you don't want to ever lose more than 5%, you run a very, very low level of risk. And you look at the amount of risk that people are running, and it's kind of consistent with those objectives. So that's one, just general lower risk preferences. The other, I think, and this was, I had a great conversation with one of the large multi-managers out there. And I think that some of this comes from this high performance, in some ways, survival of the fittest culture, where if you don't make money, you're out. And, you know, people have stop losses that are set at 10%, right? And so do your thing. And as long as you're not down 10%, you know, you're good. But the perceived stop loss is much tighter. The manager who's sitting there trying to generate money knows that if he's down 2%, they're going to start watching me. And if I'm down 3%, then we're going to, I'm going to have to go have conversations and there'll be a weekly update thing going. And if I'm down 5%, I'm probably out of here. And so if you're setting risk limits on your, on your traders and, your, and the folks that are trying to make the money, but the perceived stop is much tighter, then it's very hard to get that person to take risk. And I think some of the sort of high performance culture is contributing to a lack or a, uh, an unwillingness on, on traders' part to actually take risk. I think when you, when you look at a lower return world outside of pure equities, the, the penalty for being wrong or having more volatility is higher. So people, you know, people will look at risk adjusted returns and if you, if you have more volatility, they're going to be concerned because you don't have the returns to back it up. But you have to, to make returns, you have to take risk. Everyone yeah. would agree with that. So. And, and this plays very well into our discussion on fees because mm-hmm. as people are taking less risk, they're mm-hmm. making less return, mm-hmm. but they've kept their fees constant. Therefore, it's a sneaky way of making investors pay higher fees per unit of risk and therefore per unit of return That's because right. they're taking less risk. Mm-hmm. And in that sense, everybody loses. That's right. And that, this is another thing about the fees. The reason that the fees have to come down is because risk takings come down. Yeah. And, and in, in effect, the price of the fund is, is more than doubled just because of what's happened to the mm-hmm. risk taking. Mm-hmm. So these funds, even though the fee headline number has stayed the same, you know, the true cost is more than doubled because the risk taking is so low. Agreed. So my fear for the alternative industry is that we've gotten into, we've pushed the managers to take less risk. And as a result, the returns will be very consistent with their historical sharp ratios, probably possibly lower because of the, uh, the increase in, in the number of players. But we've got to get the risk up if we want to make any money in this. And I think that that's a real problem. And, and therefore, do you, since you have the, you know, the, the biggest conversation with the institutions, do you have to go back to them and now educate them and saying, actually, you need more? I mean, we all know the pension funds, for the most part, are underfunded anyway. So, I mean, do they need to understand that they need to allow to take more risk? I talked to one of the large, large managers that we, we would all know, and he said, look, we have three share classes, 10, 15, and 20, because everybody chooses 10. Everybody picks 10. Mm-hmm. And so... It's not, it's not to lay this all at the feet of the managers. They're acting quite rationally. 
I think. I think as an industry though, and the amount of the types of money that's come in, we've pushed things to cater to a very low risk preference. Mm -hmm. And so that to me is quite troublesome. I, I think when you start to see more volatility and, and more opportunity for higher returns, I think people's risk appetite actually expands. They, they, they say, okay, I'm willing to take it more because I see the opportunity. Mm -hmm. Maybe one of the reasons why they, that this risk appetite has, has declined is because people just don't have an expectation outside of maybe hopefully equities, but the, you know, the expectation that returns are going to be there to support the level of volatility, that, mm -hmm. that, which is a little bit uh, sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy is that you're worried about returns and you take less risk, well, you're going to get less returns. So. Mm -hmm. I think there's also a little misperception too about volatility and the nature of volatility. Volatility is generally destructive for asset owners. And to the extent that people have, you know, volatility is generally good for market makers and traders, right? You have many opportunities to kind of be on the bid and be on the offer and you can, mm -hmm. you can do things with volatility. But for asset owners, volatility is generally destructive. And to the extent that people have decreased their trading and just have taken on longer term thematic views and are more in a sort of an asset owner position, I think more uncertainty and volatility is likely to lead to destructive outcomes in our alternatives than, than to provide great opportunities. So I, I think you got to be careful, like uh, wishing for more volatility and so on and so forth can could be quite destructive. Mm. Well, on that cautionary note, Chris, Adam and Friedman, thank you ever so much for sharing your thoughts and opinions on managed futures and, and alternative investments in general. I really appreciate your openness during our conversation today. And to our listeners around the world, let me finish by saying that I hope you are able to take something from today's conversation with you as you continue your own investment journey. And if you did, please share these episodes with your friends and colleagues and send us a comment to let us know what topics you want us to bring up in the upcoming conversations with industry leaders in managed futures. From me, Niels Kostoblarsen, thank you for listening, and I look forward to being back with you on the next episode of Top Traders Roundtable. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Roundtable. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes or SoundCloud and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review on iTunes. It only takes a minute, and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you on the next episode of Top Traders Roundtable.